Let's chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it. Aaron's fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's peewee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It's an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and the number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories from his time in the NBA. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. The Volume. All I want for the holidays this year is some NBA action. This week, new customers can score 150 instantly in bonus bets just for betting five bucks. An instant dub just for you guys. The MVP odds are heating up. Just so you guys know, on DraftKings today... December 18th, Nicole Jokic plus 210, Luka Doncic plus 400, Joel Embiid plus 425, Shea Gilgis Alexander plus 900, Giannis plus 900, Jason Tatum plus 1800. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use code HOOPS. New customers can get 150 instantly in bonus bets for betting just $5 on basketball. Only on DraftKings Sportsbook with code HOOPS. The crown is yours. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or visit www.1800gambler.net. In New York, call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY to 467-369. In Connecticut, help is available for problem gambling. Call 888-789-7777 or visit ccpg.org. Please play responsibly on behalf of Boot Hill Casino and Resort in Kansas. 21 plus, age varies by jurisdiction, void in Ontario. Bonus bets expire 168 hours after issuance. See dkng.com slash basketball for eligibility and deposit restrictions, terms, and responsible gaming resources. All right, welcome to Hoops Tonight here at The Volume. Happy Wednesday, everybody. Hope all of you guys are having a great first week of the year. We have an awesome show today, that epic showdown between the Celtics and the Thunder. We're going to be breaking that game down from the perspective of both teams. The Golden State Warriors got a huge win against the Orlando Magic last night, one that they very badly needed as the Magic continue their slide. And then we have three mailbag questions for the end of the show as well. You guys know the drill before we get started. Subscribe to our brand new YouTube channel. It would mean a lot to me if you guys would take a second to scroll down and hit that subscribe button. Don't forget about our podcast feed 
feeds, wherever you get your podcasts under Hoops Tonight. Follow me on Twitter at underscore Jason LT. That's where I put film threads on most mornings as well as show announcements. I did a film thread on both of today's games, including an extensive film thread on uh, Celtics Thunder. So you guys can find that on my Twitter feed. And then last but not least, keep dropping mailbag questions in the YouTube comments so we can keep hitting them throughout the week. All right. Well, well we had a, a showdown between the top two teams in my power rankings yesterday, and it did not disappoint. And, you know, it was there, early on, there was a very specific matchup that was going horribly for the Celtics. We talk a lot about Boston's defensive personnel, and there's a lot of focus on Jason Tatum, who I think is capable of being one of the best perimeter defenders in the league when he's locked in. You saw some of that against Shea Gilgis-Alexander down the stretch of this game. Jalen Brown is another wing athlete. Kristaps Porzingis has a rim protector. Al Horford is the excellent team defender, the guy that can cause Joel Embiid problems. And there's a lot of focus in those departments, but the Celtics actually have one of the best defenders defensive guard course that you'll find in the league. Derek White and Drew Holiday are both excellent guard defenders, and Shea was just cooking those dudes. Outside of a, a late possession where uh, where Derek White got a stop on, on Shea Gilgis-Alexander, it was a lot of the, him just going right around those guys and either finishing at the rim or wrecking havoc uh, with the pass. And specifically, Drew Holiday just looked like he was stuck in the mud in this game. He was bad on both ends, two for eight from the field with three turnovers on the other end, but really, really struggled defensively, got benched for Peyton Pritchard late in the game. Derek White did a better job on both ends of the floor, but he struggled to stay in front of Shea. That was the key matchup early on. And then the other thing that I thought the the, the uh, Thunder did really well is they attacked Porzingis when he was roaming off the ball. This is a thing that we see a lot around the league these days is taking your primary rim protector and just putting them on the worst offensive player from the other team, at least the worst off-ball other player, right, or offensive player. And then that puts you in a position where, you know, you might concede some catch-and-shoot threes to that guy, but if he's roaming around wrecking havoc on all of the other action elsewhere on the floor, it can be a, a beneficial trade-off for you, right? Well, what the Thunder did, which I thought was really smart, is, again, Porzingis in that case, his focus is on the other four guys. He's not hyper-concerned with what the bad offensive player is doing. He spent most of the, 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 the game on Josh Giddy and a good amount of it on Aaron Wiggins as well. And one of the things I liked is, they just looked to get Josh Giddy the ball one way or another. There was a you know a, a, a play where they had Giddy with the ball at the right elbow, and it's all this other action going on, and it looks like it's designed to get someone else the ball, but then Josh Giddy just rips to the left and gets by Porzingis and gets an and one off the glass. He hit another three in Porzingis's face in the right corner on a play where Porzingis was just being a little passive because he's not worried necessarily about Josh Giddy as a scorer. Josh Giddy hit a second half three off of a dig down, hit a couple of threes. There was a play where he was on Aaron Wiggins and he's watching the rest of the floor and they just back screen for him and Aaron Wiggins cuts along the baseline that hit him and he gets a wide open layup. It's it's a very important you know counter when they have a guy that they're using as a roamer to make sure that he also has to account for the guy that he's actually guarding. And you know one of the other things too and I've talked about this on the show before. This is a, a, another common theme around the league where it's like, we don't think this guy can shoot, so let's just give him wide open looks. And they did that with Josh Giddy again. And it's like, I, I understand that as an initial strategy, but I think you need to audible from it quickly because one, these guys are pros. And two, most bad shooters in the NBA are actually streaky shooters. And if they start to feel good with their shot, they can really knock them down. And so it's one of those things where like, it's one thing if you leave them wide open 
and he misses the first one, he might spiral mentally and that might be a good strategy for you the rest of the game. I'll give you an example, like the like when the Lakers decided to ignore Miles Turner in the in-season tournament championship game. He ended up going one for five. It worked out. The one he made was late in the game. He had already missed a bunch of them, right? It's like that worked out in that case. But there have been plenty of examples this year where the Lakers ignored a guy, I think like Dante Exum from the Mavericks, and he keeps making shots and they keep ignoring him. And it's like, this is a professional basketball player. He's going to make shots, right? And so they conceded the open threes to Josh Giddy, and instead of adjusting when Josh Giddy started making them, he kept making them. He ended up hitting two massive ones late in the game. And then for Boston, their best success was coming from their two-man game with Jason Tatum and Derek White, or Jason Tatum with Peyton Pritchard. And the main reason why they were having success there is, again, you've got a bigger defender, Lou Dort, on Jason Tatum, who they do not want to switch under any circumstances. And then you've got these smaller guards, your thinner guards, guarding Peyton Pritchard or Derek White. And so they don't want to switch and they don't want to hedge because those guys, you know, Derek White and Peyton Pritchard can both shoot, you know, catch and shoot threes off the move relatively easy. Derek White's been killing teams with that this year. And so they were able to get a lot of paint touches out of it. That was the primary driving force of Boston's offensive success. Although they did have a lot of the typical offensive issues you you come to expect from Boston, like Tatum hunting pull-up threes. He took seven more pull-up jump shots in this game, leading to only six points. That's been a consistent theme throughout this season. And then as a team, just taking a lot of like early clock more difficult threes rather than you know running some offense to try to get higher quality shots. And so OKC started to pull away in that third quarter. They started to get hot with their three-point shooting, right? Like they hit two quick threes to start the third quarter, which quickly get them the lead, and then they just start to slowly pull away. And then the Thunder bench really grew the lead in the early fourth quarter. Jalen Williams, uh, uh, Jay Will, the backup center, ended up hitting a huge above the break three on the left wing, basically in a bailout situation at the end of the clock. That felt like free money. That was an awesome shot. Uh, Vasilij Micic had a really nice like pump fake drive, a closeout kick out pass to Kassan Wall. Kaysan Wallace in the right corner, which he made. Uh, uh, Jay Dove, Jalen Williams, the starting forward, he ended up hitting a nasty little driving fadeaway uh, over Luke Cornett. And then suddenly the Thunder were up 18, and it seemed like the game was over. But then the Celtics made a run. And they were awesome on offense in this run. A lot of the same things I was just talking about. Derek White hit a couple of wing threes. They actually scored on 10 consecutive possessions up until Jalen Brown's garbage time three late in the game when it was already over. And they made it into a game. But when you're down 18, you have to play perfect defensively. And they just gave up too many baskets on the other end against the uh, Shea Gilgis-Alexander, Chet Holmgren pick-and-roll action. And so what I want to do here, which is what I thought was the most interesting part of this game, down the stretch, when Boston really locked in and tried to make it a game, they put Jason Tatum on Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And then from there, Shea started spamming the Chet pick-and-roll to try to get easy shots despite the fact that Jason Tatum was causing some disruptions on the ball. And from there, a really interesting chess match took place. One that kind of reminded me of the type of adjustments that you see in a playoff series, and I wanted to dive into that on a possession-by-possession possession basis. So, first time they run the pos- uh, the, the pick-and-pop. Now again, just imagine, Shea Gildas-Alexander on the ball, Chet comes to set the screen, Porzingis is basically showing to, uh, to help Tatum, 
as Shea's coming over the top of that screen, and Chet is popping to the three-point line. So the first time they run it, Peyton Pritchard rotates off of J-Dub, and they actually end up forcing a turnover. So the second time they do it, for whatever reason, Pritchard just doesn't rotate. He's guarding Josh Giddy this time in the left corner. Shea comes off the screen. Chet pops to the left wing extended, and Pritchard just doesn't rotate for whatever reason, even though he just did on the previous possession, and Chet hits the wide-open three. Important note, because Chet, on unguarded catch-and-shoot jump shots this year, is shooting 47%. That's 1.42 points per shot. So that's something that you can never afford to do. And from there, we start to see the beginnings of a personnel shortcoming for Boston that's showing to the surface, which is basically that Porzingis is not fast enough to show on a ball screen while recovering to Chet at the three-point line. No shame in that. There's like two centers in the league that can do that, maybe three, like Gobert, Anthony Davis, and and you know Bam Adebayo, maybe Draymond. Like There's only a small handful of guys that are, that are fast enough to do that, so there's no shame in that, but that was the personnel shortcoming that they started to have, right? So third time down the floor, they go to run that um, uh, uh, that same pick and pop action, right? This time Jalen Brown is the weak side guy in position to rotate. He actually st- uh, stunts into the passing lane and then recovers. It gets Shea to hesitate. Chet's not open anymore. Porzingis can recover. Now Shea's stuck on an island with Jason Tatum. That's what the, the that's what that little dig down rotation or fake little you know uh, stunt into the passing lane that Jalen Brown accomplished. It gave Jason Tatum the opportunity to guard Shea on an island and try to get a stop. Shea goes left, gets to a pump fake, and Tatum jumps out of his shoes and lands on top of Shea, sends him to the foul line. Right, so we've run it three times now, and the Thunder have gotten a bucket on two of the possessions, five points in three possessions. So spamming that action, again, there's so much uh, focus on on you know the individual defense. It's like, oh, Jason Tatum on Shea Gilgis-Alexander. And I understand people want basketball to be one-on-one so bad, but it's just not that. It's, it's all about a five-man unit and what they can accomplish together. This is a great example of how, like, even if you have a great person to throw at an individual, if they have an action they can run that brings multiple defenders into the action, they can have success. And again, like even if uh, Tatum does a better job and gets a stop on Shea there because of the pick and pop where they gave up the basket, that would still be three points and three possessions. So we get our first major adjustment on the fourth possession down the floor. The the Thunder go back to that uh, uh, Shea, Chet, pick and pop. This time, though, Boston switches Derek White onto Chet Holmgren. And in the possession, when she, uh, in the, the idea there is just you're putting an athlete. You're putting a much faster player. You're bringing more foot speed into the action. And so Derek White can kind of soft hedge and be there to help as the screen is going by, but then he has the speed to recover to Chet. So on this possession, Shea ends up throwing a kickback pass to Chet, who tries to drive on Derek White. Derek White guesses the closeout angle right, beats Chet to that right-hand drive, and ends up taking the ball away. So they end up getting a stop. And one of the interesting things there, there's two two little adjustments I, I think that you'd see from the Thunder in a playoff series if they kept doing that. One, give the ball to Chet at the foul line and just let him go to work against Derek White. I think I think he's demonstrated that he can have success there. And then two, you know, Chet was setting a lot of ghost screens down the stretch and it, it there's a very important distinction between when to ghost screen and when to actually screen. So to be clear, what is a ghost screen? A ghost screen is when I run up like I'm going to set a screen but without actually setting one, I basically just get right to where I'm about to set a screen and then I shoot off 
to the three-point line. And basically the idea there is I'm trying to get my guy to hedge because if he hedges and I slip out, I have an opportunity for a quick catch-and-shoot three. Or A lot of times you'll see that in pick-and-roll from big guys slipping to the short roll and they're looking for an opportunity to catch that over-the-top pass. But it only is open if the guy hedges. Right. If the guy doesn't hedge and he's staying home, then it's actually more important for you to set a screen. Because if you set the screen and the guy's not actually hedging, your defender is not actually hedging, then I might be able to actually set a solid screen on Jason Tatum, which would get Shea downhill. Right. And so that was one other adjustment I think they would have picked up on film in a playoff series is like, hey, when they put Derek White on you, we need to read whether or not he's hedging. He's not hedging. We need to set solid screens and try to get Shea separation from Jason Tatum so he can get downhill. So fifth time down the floor, this Derek White adjustment has caused some problems, so they go to a double drag action. They bring two screeners up into the action. I think it was Jalen Williams and Chet Holmgren, if I remember correctly. And on that possession... It ends up leading to a switch from Boston. Shea gets Derek White on him. This is when Derek White gets that key stop that I was telling you guys about, although Jalen Brown ends up getting a beat uh, backdoor, basically, by Lou Dort for an offensive rebound putback. So the sixth time down the floor, the uh, they go back to Porzingis on Chet. Still go screening, not setting good screens. And what ends up happening is they the pop's not open because Chet's not setting uh, a good screen and Porzingis is in a really soft coverage. He's not back in a in, in a uh, he's back instead of up in a hedge. So it ends up in a Shea Tatum ISO anyway. Shea's icing uh, isolating Tatum on the left wing. Kristaps Porzingis is guarding uh, Chet Holmgren, but he's way down at the foul line. Okay, and again, this is an example of what I'm talking about. Tatum, good one-on-one defender. Hasn't uh, the only score Shea has on him at this point is a pump fake foul, which Tatum's probably not going to fall for the next time, right? So instead of letting Tatum guard Shea, Porzingis is way too far in help. Shea just throws an easy kickout pass to Chet at the uh, above the break, and he knocks down yet another three. Like we mentioned earlier, that's an extremely high percentage shot. You could argue Chet's one of the best standstill shooters in the league. So bad help. Another big defensive mistake from Boston as they get uh, um, get another basket. So for those of you guys keeping track, we had five points through three possessions. They didn't score on the fourth, so five through four. They get an offensive rebound put back on the fifth. So we're up to seven on five. And then on the sixth possession, they give up a three. Now we've given up 10 points in six possessions. So again, Boston literally scored on 10 consecutive possessions down the stretch of the game, but they gave up baskets. They gave up 10 points on six possessions, which ends up uh, uh, being basically what prevents Boston from ever getting the opportunity to gain the lead. Seventh time down the floor, they go back to Derek White on Chet Holmgren. It's a really interesting possession where they just had a lot of struggle with this a couple possessions ago, so they don't bring Chet into the action. On the other side, you could see Josh Giddy and Jalen Williams kind of debating which one of them should go set the screen. They hesitate too long. Shea has no choice but to attack Jason Tatum and ISO. That's when he takes the really, really difficult fadeaway, drifting into the baseline along the right block, and he ends up missing there. So in total, 10 points over 7 possessions, basically looking at Shea heliocentric ball screen game. Right, so down the stretch, after as we see there, because they started to figure it out with the Derek White 
on Kristaps Porzingis thing. There were defensive mistakes in there that still led to 10 points for the Thunder on seven possessions. But from a schematic standpoint, they figured out now, if we have Derek White on Kristaps Porzingis and we have Jason Tatum on Shea, they don't get the same high-quality shots as long as we follow our defensive principles elsewhere on the floor. Good, a, a, a good step for the Celtics, right? But I always talk about diversity of shot creation. Shea is a shifty skill guard, right? Jalen Williams is a downhill athlete. This is why I always talk about like the like spamming actions or heliocentric basketball should be used in short bursts. Identify your advantage, get whatever you can out of it. When the adjustments are made and they've started to figure it out, audible quickly. One of the things that happens in basketball is you see the same thing over and over and over and over again. The defense just kind of figures out how to guard it just by virtue of they practiced guarding it over the course of the previous dozen possessions, right? So it's important to to know when you've kind of squeezed the sponge for all it's worth, make an adjustment. Down the stretch, all Jalen Williams, the last couple of possessions. Jalen Williams has Peyton Pritchard on him. Key mistake here, I thought, from Boston as well. Drew Holiday didn't play particularly well. I shouldn't even say didn't play. Drew Holiday was garbage in this game. It was not a good Drew Holiday game. He'd be the first person to tell you that. It happens. Sometimes guys play, uh, sometimes guys play bad games, right? But... Uh, uh, um, Joe Mazzulla ends up going with pa- uh, Peyton Pritchard down the stretch of the game. This is where it's a personnel shortcoming because Jalen Williams is like, Whoo, I have Peyton Pritchard on me. I'm going right through this dude. And he just drives right into him, bullies him with the shoulder behind the back dribble, goes into the lane and draws a foul and gets to the foul line, right? So easy bucket. And again, do you remember how I said Derek White got a key stop on Shea late? He actually, if I remember correctly, he got a second one too on a step back three that Shea took in between these two possessions. But like, again, it's because Derek White got lots of possessions. And at the end of the game, he was focused enough to play really good defense, right? I would have given Drew that same leeway. I'd have been like, You've played like shit tonight. No worries. Go get a stop for me now. Go get a stop for me. Go do what you've done your entire career. Go get a stop. And instead, it like a Drew Holiday, even on a bad night, just has a much better chance of staying in front of Jalen Williams in that situation than Peyton Pritchard does. I thought that was a mistake. Next trip, uh, two trips down the floor. The 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 previous uh, the one after that, uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander ended up, I think, taking a step back three over Shea Gilgis Alexander, if I remember correctly, or, or excuse me, over Derek White, if I remember correctly. But then the last one, Shea's got Jason Tatum on him, and Jalen Williams has uh, Derek White on him, and they end up going with a kind of like a quick little dribble handoff to get a switch, and now Jalen Williams is coming down against Jason Tatum. Jason Tatum is in a trail position. He's, he's, he's in a passive switch. So, like, there's a difference between switching aggressively, meaning, like, I set the screen and my guy just shows hard and, and like, applies ball pressure versus, a, like, a, a really passive switch where, like, when he's coming off the screen, the guy's kind of waiting for him below the level of the screen. And you might ask yourself, why in the world is Jalen Williams looking to attack Jason Tatum down the stretch instead of one of the smaller Boston guards? And the answer is simple. Jason Tatum was so far back on his heels, J-Dub just hit the Jets. And, like, Jason Tatum's a better athlete than J-Dub, but not when he's got a running start like that. J-Dub ends up getting downhill and taking that little short fadeaway over the top that ends up being the dagger. Really, really impressive move. A great example of diversity of shot creation, right? Like, your skill guard spammed an action for 10 possessions or 7 possessions and got you 10 points. That was great. But towards the end, it became clear that Boston was starting to figure out the action, 
right? And they were weaponizing their two best defensive players on Chet and on uh, on SGA, right? So you had a, another matchup that you could go to with a different perimeter shot creator in Jalen Williams that provides a different style of shot creation, real downhill force. He ends up getting downhill twice at the end of the game and getting you four points out of it. I, I, th- that was a perfect example of that specific dynamic. I, You know, on the Boston front, uh, their offense was fine. Again, there were some bad shots in that fourth quarter. Tatum took a couple of bad step-back threes that I really didn't like. But before Jalen Brown's three at the end of the game, when, when the game was basically over, Boston scored on 10 straight possessions. So offense wasn't the story of this particular game. Now, it is worth mentioning, part of the reason they went down 18 was bad offense. A lot of, uh, 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 of the things I talked about earlier, bad pull-up jump shots, bad early clock threes when they could have gotten better shots. But that, that's where the game was lost. And then you essentially find yourself in a position where you have to play perfect down the stretch. And it's like, you scored 10 straight times, great. But the 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 Thunder ended up getting something like, I, I want to say it was um, it was four points on their final three possessions. So that'd be 14 points over their final 10 possessions. And that's a 140 offensive rating. That's not, that's not going to be enough to, to, to get it done when you're down 18 early in the, in the fourth quarter. So the next question is, are the Thunder a legitimate championship contender? This is a team that I've, I've waited up until this point to add to my uh, championship contender list uh, for a lot of different reasons that we don't have to get into. But let's take a deep let's take a deeper look at it. So the key factors that I look at with championship contenders, right? Half court offense, half court defense. They're top five in both categories. Uh, they're the number one half court offense in the league right now. They have diversity of shot creation, right? Like they've got a shifty guard that's more of a skill guard. They have like a athletic guard in Jalen Williams. They've got a skilled big to kind of tie it all together. They uh, they don't really have as much power in the lineup as I'd like. Like Jalen Williams is really the only guy that brings power, and that's one concern to me because I think power offenses thrive in the playoffs more than skill offenses do in a lot of cases. But to put it simply, I don't think this team is going to struggle to score in the playoffs. I think they have enough on that end of the floor. Now, defensively, they have versatility in terms of their coverages, right? Like they're good in drop coverage. They have an excellent point of attack defender to throw out the best players in the league and Lou Dort. Uh, I, I actually, Lou Dort's become, in my opinion, one of the most valuable players in the league with his ability to guard the best perimeter weapons in the league while, while being difficult to screen, while being a plus offensive player on the other end of the floor. They have a really good rim protector in Chet Holmgren, so that's kind of the two brackets of that kind of drop coverage concept, right? They also have switchability, too. Like, they don't have a lot of easy targets, and they're good in help side. I have two major concerns with the Thunder. Their overall physicality. Boston made nine field goals in the paint in that fourth quarter. They had four offensive rebounds just in the fourth quarter. They scored on 10 consecutive possessions down the stretch, as I've said several times already. Boston had a 137 offensive rating in that quarter. I, I think I think they, they showed uh, a, a good example of how OKC's a little on the thin side. They're not, uh, you know, they have some stout players, guys like Lou Dort and Jalen Williams, but almost every other guy on the roster is thin and somebody that can be physically bullied in some cases. And I think that that just makes it a little bit tougher when games turn into rock fights, right? And then lastly, the inability to rebound. They gave up an off, they give up an offensive rebound on 33% of their opponents' misses this year. That is the second worst mark in the league, which I think would be a problem in a seven gamer. That said, I do want to add them to my contenders list. So the question is where? 
you can and one last note on the 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 contender piece too. I think part of it is Shea. Like Shea's just reaching that point now where he's a top tier superstar and we have to include him in the list of guys that can definitely be the best player on a championship team. Like here's the thing. Is Tatum a better playoff player overall? Probably. Like I sent out a poll earlier, like who would you take in a playoff series with two early, uh, even teams on Twitter? And it's like 60-40 favoring SGA at this point. I actually side more with Tatum just because he's way more experienced, which I, I've always thought matters when you get to that level. And two, Tatum really can inflict the game physically. Like he can really put his physical imprint on a playoff series in a way that he didn't used to be able to. I, I think something silly like him switching onto Shea and really doing a nice job down the stretch of this game is a great example of impact that extends beyond half court shot creation. But Shea is clearly much better in the chess match. Like he's one of the best chess match players in the league. There's only a small handful of guys I'd take over him. So, and, and I think it would translate well to the postseason. So I do think the Thunder are a contender. The question is where? So I wanted to update my contender tier. I still have Denver at one, Boston at two, then a drop-off. I have Milwaukee at three, the Lakers at four. I'm going to put the Thunder in at five. Then I have the Wolves at six, the Suns at seven, the Warriors at eight. And all of these teams, I think, need a trade to take a step up. The, the As I've talked about all season, to get into that Denver-Boston tier, I think Milwaukee needs an excellent point of attack defender, something they do not have on the roster. I think the Lakers need a point of attack defender that can also play off the ball. Their, their primary offensive players are not good enough offensively. Like The Bucks, I think, can get away with a more limited offensive a point of attack defender by virtue of the fact that their half court offense has been so good because of Damon Giannis, right? Like that, that to me is, is a, is they have a little bit more margin for error there. The Lakers need like a legit two way guy. They need a guy that can defend at the point of attack slot Torian Prince onto lesser defense, uh, uh, de- defensive assignments. And that is a plus offensive player. The thunder, I think absolutely need a low man. Something I've been talking about all season. They need a big forward, that can slot between Jalen Williams and Chet Holmgren, that moves Josh Giddy to the bench, that can help them in help defense situations, that can help them in rock fights, that can help them on the defensive glass. That, to me, is the the need that they need to fulfill to get back up into that top tier with Denver and Boston. They're way more talented than even the Lakers and even Milwaukee. Like the, the Thunder arguably have some of the most talent in the league. They're a lot closer to Boston than anybody else's in terms of like total talent down the roster. But they're super young and they're super inexperienced. And everything about NBA history tells us those teams type to, tend to uh, underachieve. Super young, super inexperienced, super thin and small. That, to me, is what kind of keeps them down right now. A veteran forward that can help them with their size and physicality, that would go a long way to addressing a lot of those problems and getting them up into that list. The Wolves, I don't really even know if there's a trade that would get them into that top tier. I'm a little concerned just in general about their half-court offense, and I don't think that there's necessarily a move they can make. It really just comes down to their six for me. But their pathway to winning is Ant just goes up a crazy level in the playoffs and out-executes all the best shot creators in the league, but I just find that to be somewhat unlikely. The Suns, they uh, they desperately need some sort of perimeter forward that can play on both ends of the ball, a, a type of player that we've been talking about for a while, but specifically a physical forward. Basically, think of like a bigger, stronger 
uh, version of Eric Gordon. That's what they need is like a, a big forward that can defend, that can also shoot. I just don't think that they have the, the resources to actually make that s- a sort of move. So I kind of view them as a long shot cr- uh, contender. And then the Warriors, to me, if they get a star, like if they uh, a secondary star, like if they flip Kaminga and Chris Paul for Pascal Siakam or Kaminga and Chris Paul for Jeremy Grant or Kaminga and Chris Paul and picks for Laurie Markkinen. Like I just, I just think they instantly become one of the best teams in the league because it's Steph Curry, it's Draymond Green, it's Clay Thompson, it's Andrew Wiggins, and it's a, a really, really good secondary star forward. I think, I think that team is in that top tier. So that's where they shake out as for now, uh, as it pertains to the thunder in the big picture, I would I would imagine get get them a couple seasons of playoff experience and give them a little bit of a, a, a years in the weight room and years of just experience and growth and just growing into a a, a grown man basketball team and I think they're going to be a perennial top tier championship contender like every year they're going to be in that Denver Boston tier it feels like almost a certainty for me at this point um, the Boston Oklahoma City matchup. I thought Boston showed down the stretch that they can have some success slowing down the Thunder offense. And they showed that they have lots of physical advantages all over the floor in terms of strength. I thought that was a pretty clear uh, takeaway from that fourth quarter run that Boston had. If they started a seven-game series tomorrow, I think I'd pick Boston to win in six or seven, depending on who had home court. Again, I just think those physical advantages would wear them down over the course of the series. But a very, very, very entertaining example of that matchup that we got to see last night. All right, moving on to Magic Warriors. So I'm, I'm not going to go too long on this game, but the Magic uh, ended up t- uh, going up 93-92 on a Franz Wagner layup with eight minutes and 33 seconds left. Then they go on a defensive run. Now, if you really look at the Warriors post Draymond Green suspension, they've not been a very good defensive team. If I remember correctly, I think they're 19th in defense since the Draymond Green suspension. But you can win games with defensive runs as long as you have the offense to actually turn that run into a lead, right? So it's 93, excuse me, it's 93-92 with 8.33 left in the fourth quarter, and the Warriors give up just 10 points over the next seven and a half minutes as they take an 11-point lead, and a lot of key con- contributions. I thought Clay Thompson did a really nice job on Paolo Moncaro. He got him a few times with the bully ball, but down the stretch, he got several stops in a row. Really nice job absorbing contact and then attacking the shooting pocket. Again, when it comes to size mismatches in the post defensively, you do not want to try to challenge up top. You want to disrupt the base and disrupt the shooting pocket. Those So you want to absorb blows to where he's not getting easy, easy lift close to the basket. And then when he exposes the basketball low, you have to attack it there. If you attack it high, those dudes are trained to finish over contests all day long, especially when they have size. But when you attack the shooting pocket, you can disrupt that motion. He had a key strip on Paolo late in the game. I thought Clay was awesome. It's a great example of, I wrote in my notes, losing the battle but winning the war. There were times where Paolo scored on on Clay in just bully ball possessions. But again, it's like, if you can, you know, over a seven possession sample over the course of the game, hold him to two or three buckets, then you've done your job. And I thought Clay did his job. I thought Brandon Pazemski had a really nice help defense game, digging down into passing lanes and driving lanes and getting steals and deflections. He was also doing a really nice job peeling off and boxing out the center. It's one of the most important jobs in defensive rebounding is like somebody shoots the ball and your rim protector has to leave his man to go contest a shot. Trace Jackson Davis 
leaves his man a lot to try to uh, to block shots, which a team like Orlando can have success on the offensive glass in that vacancy that opens up there. But I thought Pazemski was doing a really nice job of boxing that man underneath the backboard whenever he had an opportunity when Trace Jackson Davis was going away, which helped them on the defensive glass. Trace, in general, I thought had a really good game. Another example of that high-motor athlete I've always been talking about, just active hands, smart help, had some key contests at the rim late in the game, a block on a lob pass on a Jalen Suggs closeout attack, a a block on a Mo Wagner post-up when Mo Wagner was bowling his way to the rim a lot. Trace was awesome. Jonathan Kaminga had a big block on a Jalen Suggs baseline drive late in the game and he was in good position on his weak side rotations just a really really good defensive effort from a lot of key guys as the Warriors went on a defensive run as a matter of fact they ended up scoring five points just off of turnovers in that fourth quarter I thought Clay had a really good offensive quarter in the fourth he hit the big three after after the Magic went up 93-92. He hit a classic Clay Thompson movement three coming off a screen towards his right to put them back up 95-93. Very next possession, he hit Trace Jackson Davis slipping the same action. Again, makes the three, pulls the hedge, uh, pulls the screen defender further out the second time, able to hit the slip. He ended up getting free throws at it. He had a transition run out dunk, and then he had a big back cut for a layup late in the game when Steph was running the point. <clears throat> but most importantly... Steph got his groove back, something that we've been waiting on for a while. Steph's previous 10 games, 23 points, 3 rebounds, 5 assists per game, 41% from the field, and 36% from 3. It's really hard to win when your superstar is playing bad basketball, and Steph was playing bad basketball by his standards. But last night, looked like the real Steph. Had a lot of success late in the game, attacking Goga Pitadze in pick and roll, particularly splitting that action. So when Goga hedges... He had an opportunity to kind of shoot that gap, beat him for a layup once. Then he snaked the pick and roll and dragged him out to the right wing in a switch and hit a three in his face. Uh, It had some success against Jalen Suggs, beating him off the dribble and got to a nice step back three in the fourth quarter as well. Just looked like the real Steph. 36 points and six assists on 20 shots. Couple of other shout outs. Uh, I thought Andrew Wiggins had a couple of key scores in the second half on Gary, uh, Gary Harris and post ups. Big part of the Warriors' offense right now is attacking mismatches with their wings. Uh, Jonathan Kaminga had four assists last night. That's only the second time this season he's had four assists in a game. He tends to play on an island a lot, right? Like when he's running out in transition or when he's attacking out of the post, he can be really good. He scored in the post again on Anthony Black uh, drawing a foul. He's up to 56 post-ups this year, including passes, leading to 1.11 points per possession, which is excellent. When he shoots out of the post, he draws a foul 22% of the time. So like when he's on an island, he actually is a very useful player, but the Warriors are not not an on an island team very often, right? And so it's important to be able to play in their normal motion. And one of the things I thought Jonathan Kaminga did a really nice job of last night was doing the Draymond thing, which is when you catch the ball on the perimeter, your first thing is where's Steph? Where is Clay? Are they open? If they are, I'm going to throw them the ball. And he was hovering around that top of the key area a lot and throwing those rifle swing passes to those guys and got assists out of it. He had four assists. And I thought I thought it was a, a key little like moment of growth from Jonathan Kaminga in terms of his role on this team. We are welcoming a new show to iHeart and the DraftKings YouTube channel. It is called Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano. It is an insider's look at the NBA and the culture surrounding the league. Every week, the five-time All-Star and number one pick in the 2010 NBA Draft, John Wall will give his unique perspective on the hottest topics in the league and tell the best behind-the-scenes stories 
from his time in the NBA. CJ will bring his A-list comedian buddies to keep it light and fire off some hoops takes. Plus, John will be inviting current and former NBA players, friends, and teammates to join the show as well to give their unfiltered accounts of what really goes on in the league from a player's perspective. So check out Point Game with John Wall and CJ Toledano on the iHeartRadio app, the DraftKings YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Witness the dawning of a new era in automotive luxury with a reveal unlike any other as Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury, the premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Join us March 20th live from the Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City, featuring an unforgettable performance by Grammy and Academy Award-winning singer, songwriter, and composer, John Batiste. The all-new Infiniti QX80 is unlike any luxury SUV you've ever seen. Smart enough to anticipate your needs, even before you do. Every line, curve, and detail was thoughtfully crafted, so everything for every passenger feels just right. Don't miss it. Mark your calendars and be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Does sleeping hot keep you up at night? Meet the Lisa Chill Collection. These cooling mattresses work like magic with a cool-to-the-touch cover, zoned springs, and comfy foam layers. Say goodbye to restless nights and wake up refreshed. Lisa's Chill Mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers that whisk away heat, so you always sleep just right. These hybrids blend up to 1,032 breathable springs and plush foams for the ultimate cooling and comfort. And the Chill Collection doesn't just feel great, it looks great too. With thoughtful design and pillowy quilt tops. No matter your budget, Lisa has a Chill Mattress for you. For a limited time, save up to $460 on Chill Mattresses and get two free pillows iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's L-E-E-S-A dot com forward slash iHeart. With Lisa, your purchase has purpose. Every year, Lisa donates thousands of mattresses to those in need. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details. All right, moving on to the mailbag. So I've got four questions for you guys today before we get out of here. I do have four. I said three earlier, but it's four. It seems like there are a lot of teams in need of a starting caliber small forward this year. Who are some names that you think could be on the move and where they might be going? And on a larger scale, what does this need say about the state of the league in basketball? So it's not just small forwards. I I look at it more as like there's a lot of guys that need more of like a perimeter two-way guy. And there are a lot of teams in need for like a low man two-way guys. So like the teams that need a more of a perimeter two-way guy are like the Lakers and the Bucks. I think the Mavs are another team that could be looking to make a smaller version of that type of deal uh, just as a guy that they could throw at the best perimeter players in the league. It's It's been a lot of Derrick Jones Jr. to start this year and, and, and Derrick Jones Jr. is fine, but I think they could use uh, uh, another option there. The uh, teams that are looking for more of a low man are like the Pacers or the Kings or the Thunder or the Warriors, right? Like these are teams that have good perimeter defenders, but they need help in interior physicality. That's a, uh, Those are examples of those teams. The, uh, the kind of perimeter guys that I look at this year that it could be available – Anybody from Brooklyn as Brooklyn's falling apart. So look at Dorian Finney-Smith. Mikhail Bridges is another guy I think that could be had potentially if if the slide for Brooklyn continues. Alex Caruso from the Chicago Bulls. 
is uh, uh, another guy. Javon Carter from the, the Chicago Bulls is another guy I'd be looking at. He's another guy that could be more affordable. There are a lot of those types of guys out there that I think teams will be going after. Uh, Alex Caruso's up over 45% from three this year, by the way. Pretty crazy. The low man that I look at, uh, the, uh, there's three big ones. Laurie Markkinen, Jeremy Grant, Pascal Siakam. And they're all very different, right? Like Laurie Markkinen is this like outstanding offensive play finisher, right? Just a dead-eye shooter, a guy that can screen and roll the rim, a guy that can beat mismatches in the post. Like he's a it j- just really like a imagine like a big giant forward version of Clay Thompson. He's like a tip of the spear kind of guy. I think I think he's really valuable. Jeremy Grant is more of like a scorer. He's a guy that like attacks mismatches in the post at all. Takes a lot of like ISO pull up jump shots and stuff. But he's shooting the ball really well off the catch this year and has been really good and effective scoring out of the post. So I think he's more of a a, a lesser version of Laurie Markkinen for lack of a better term. But Jeremy Grant has had some impressive moments of perimeter defense this year. I still think he's got that in him if he's willing to buy into a role and he's a guy that I'd be open to looking at, especially if you're a team that can't get into the bidding war for Laurie Markkinen. And then Pascal Siakam. This is a guy that I think both the Warriors and Lakers should be calling on. Uh, uh, mainly just because I view him as a guy that I think is one of the best available players per value. He's you know kind of gone under the radar in a lot of ways because he's not a very good shooter. But this is a guy who's a transcendent athlete. This is a guy that was so damn athletic that Draymond Green was struggling to handle him in the 2019 playoffs, right? This is a guy that, like, if you, br- like, when he is asked to do a ton with the basketball, like he has the last couple of years, he can be somewhat underwhelming as a postseason player, right? But when he's in a position where he's playing alongside guys who do a lot of that stuff for him and he can really focus his effort and energy to just inflicting his physicality on the game, he can be a game-changing athlete. And so even though teams like the Warriors and Lakers might not be interested in him from a shooting standpoint, I look at it as like, just for the price, for the caliber of player that you're getting back, you put him like a Wiggins Siakam Draymond front line, a Siakam LeBron Anthony Davis front line. Those are front lines that could like absolutely maul some of the bigger front lines in the league, even teams like Denver. And so I think I, I think that that could be a, a a real swing piece this year that teams should be looking out for. All right, next mailbag question. I actually missed a small part there. What does this need say about the state of the league in basketball? Pretty quickly, I just think it's a clear indicator of of the obvious fact that weak side responsibilities matter a lot, or I should say role, role player responsibilities matter a lot. There are a lot of teams this year that have stars that are playing well that are not necessarily uh, uh, succeeding to the extent that they should, right? Like we've seen this with Dame and Giannis. I know they're doing good in the regular season in terms of standings, but they've lost a lot of big games and struggled specifically because of something silly. Like who's guarding the other team's point guard? Like who's, who's picking up, the, uh, and applying ball pressure during this game. Like, they just, that singular role not being filled has made it so that the Bucks look bad in big games. That's, that's a real problem to keep an eye on, right? Like, the Lakers, it's like LeBron James and Anthony Davis both playing way better than last year, both like legitimately playing at a top 10 level this season in their 500 basketball team, in large part because they don't have a guy that can pick up at the point of attack and knock down a three at a high rate. Like it's a it's a legitimate issue for them. I think it's these teams like Oklahoma City that have so much skill and they have a rim protector, or the Pacers as well, so much skill have a rim protector, but not having a low man. And you're seeing just how fundamentally important a low man is 
in big time matchups. And I, I just think it's a, as the game has become more spread out and there's more talent on the floor, it's become more important than ever to have guys that are willing to do the dirty work on both ends of the floor. Next question. Do you honestly think the Suns will be healthy around playoff time knowing the injury history of the three stars on their roster? So here's the thing. It's let, Let's just say for this, uh, I would say there's a good chance that they're healthy and there's a good chance they're not, right? So let's just call it 50-50. If it's 50-50, there, there's, we all know that if they get hurt, they're not a threat. But that can be said about every team in the league. I believe that if the the Nuggets lost Aaron Gordon or KCP or Michael Porter Jr., they would go from being a top-tier championship contender to the lower tier. Like, losing a player and kicking you down a tier is, is, a, is a reality for every single team, in my opinion. Except for maybe Boston. Like, maybe Boston could afford an injury to one of their guys, right? But outside of that, like, no team really has that type of flexibility. And so when it really comes down to it, it's like, do you want – should we just write off the Suns all year and be like, screw it, they're going to be hurt? No. Like, we have to prepare for the potential, you know, eventuality that that, that, that they're healthy and what could happen if they are. And I, and I think that's the purpose of uh, of the way that we should cover them, if that makes sense. A lot of Nuggets fans upset that I had them lower in my power rankings. I'll just pull one comment here. Nuggets ranked too low. The uh, 10 wins out of their last 12 games played. One loss they let slip away and should have won. The most recent was definitely an embarrassing performance, but they're nowhere near as low as eight. So a couple things. My power rankings are designed to be a vehicle with which I can honor or pay respect to teams playing good regular season basketball. That was one of the decisions we made early in the year. Like I don't want my power rankings to be the same as my contender rankings. The Nuggets are number one in my contender rankings. There has not been a single moment this year, not even for a split second, not even during stretches when Jamal Murray was out and they looked bad. Like I have not even for a second doubted or had any sort of change of heart as it pertains to Denver being number one on my contenders list. Like I am, I trust them more than everyone else and it's not particularly close. And like, I'm a big believer in Denver. Right, but they're nine and eleven against teams that are five hundred or better this year. And in my power rankings list, the teams that are above just have more impressive wins. And I, I'm using that list, that specific list, for regular season kudos. And so that that's the purpose of that list. And so Denver fans like them being eight and in the power rankings more has to do with the fact that they've just been, they've been a really good standings team. They're 15 and 0 against below 500 teams, which is what's carried them in the standings, but in the bigger games, by the way, mostly because of things like Jamal Murray being out and Aaron Gordon missing a big game against the Thunder. Like there's no question. That's why which is why I'm not worried about them for the postseason. But but for my power rankings list there are teams out there that have been more impressive in terms of winning big regular season games and just the totality of regular season accomplishments. That's why I have Denver at eight at this point. It, it has nothing to do with what I see as their uh, championship potential. Go look at the teams I have above them and look at them in big games. Look at their key like signature wins this year. Most of the teams above them have a lot more in that specific department. Last question. I started tweaking my shooting form since I have a bad habit of shooting with way too high of an arc. How should I go about fixing it? How feasible is it to just lean into it? Love the show. Keep it up. So I have a, I have a philosophy with shooting form. 
Uh, and it's a philosophy I've gained from coaching kids because, as you can imagine, when you coach kids, you coach a lot of kids that have bad shooting form. And it's really this simple to me. Like, there are a million different ways to shoot a basketball. And I think it's way less important to focus on the particulars of your release and more on little details. Like, how's your balance? Are you good at making sure you have a good wide base and going straight up and down all the time and getting good lift? Like, that's step one. Particularly because most move, most shots in basketball are on the move in some way, shape, or form. Even when you're spotting up, you might be relocating. You might have just played a lot of defense, and so you're tired. Legs and lift are a huge part of it. From there, the second bit of it is like any energy transfer is what I refer to it as. But energy transfer is how do you get from your feet through to the top of the shot in a way that has no wasted energy that has no unnecessary movement, which then creates a muscle memory that is simple that you can replicate. If you can do that, if you're balanced and you have good energy transfer, meaning you have a good you know, routine that doesn't have wasted energy that you, can, that you can reproduce every single time, you can be a good shooter even if you shoot with a ton of arc, even if you shoot with very little arc, even if you shoot with opposite thumb, even if you shoot with one hand. Even if you shoot without jumping super high, even if you jump while shooting, uh, shooting, even if you shoot while jumping super high, that to me is is way less important than do you have good lift? Are you doing the exact same thing every time? It's got to be replicable. Replicable. When I go, I, I shoot on the shooting machine at least twice a week, so I do a lot of different kinds of shooting drills. I do a lot of like one person, one ball, like movement shooting drills. That that's that, that's where I do all my off the dribble and movement stuff. And the primary goal there is like I'm trying to do game speed and and like add a lot of complication to it, right? When I'm on the shooting machine, I just do standstill shooting. And when I'm on the shooting machine, I have this constant mentality. There are two shooting machines here. The machine that's throwing me the ball and then me. I need to be a machine. How does the shooting machine get the ball to me in the same spot every single time? Because it's literally like a little catapult that's going like this and with the same spring on the same hinge, throwing the ball to the same spot every single time, right? That's what I need to be as a shooter. I need to have a form that like looks the exact same every single time with very little wasted movement, and I need to look like a shooting machine. And if I do that, I'm going to be more consistent as a shooter. And so again, I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't focus so much on the particulars of your form. Just make sure that you have good fluidity and energy transfer. And make sure you have good lift. Make sure you're doing the same thing every single time. All right, guys, that is all I have for tonight. We'll be back tomorrow breaking down the packed Wednesday night slate. As always, I appreciate you guys, and we'll see you then. chat about how to get what you need for your home when you don't have a lot of cash or credit. You can do that at Aaron's. Rent to own appliances, furniture, and tech from top brands like HP, Samsung, and Ashley. But say you don't need it anymore, no problem. At Aaron's, you can return your product at any time or even upgrade it for something new. Life's always changing. With Aaron's, your stuff can change right along with it. Keep it, return it, upgrade it, 
Aaron fits your life instead of the other way around. Approval isn't guaranteed, and some restrictions apply. See your local store for details. Infinity presents a new chapter in luxury. The premiere of the all-new 2025 Infinity QX80. Live March 20th from The Edge at Hudson Yards in New York City. Featuring a performance by John Batiste. The all-new 2025 Infiniti QX80 is an SUV designed to help every passenger feel just right. Be the first to see it March 20th at 7 p.m. Eastern, only on iHeartRadio's YouTube channel. Save the date at new-qx80.com. Don't miss it. 2025 QX80 coming this summer. Allstate wants to remind fans that mayhem is everywhere. Like in the parking lot at your kid's Wee championship game. A trophy bigger than your five-year-old is blocking the rear windshield of the car in front of you. As they reverse into you, you're stuck on defense. And if you don't have the right auto insurance coverage, this crash could drain your athletic fund. So switch to Allstate, save money, and get protected from mayhem like this. Based on coverage selected, subject to terms, conditions, and availability. Savings vary.